0: Luke chapter number 2 this morning, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 21. Luke chapter 2, verse 21, the Word of God says, And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost, that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law. Then took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people." a light to lighten the Gentiles in the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for what this time of the year means, Lord. Help us to affix our hearts and minds upon the true meaning of Christmas today. Lord, amidst all the busyness and all the gift-giving and all of the planning, and all of the laboring, Lord, I just pray that we would get our minds upon you today. Father, that we'd have our hearts open to the preached Word. Lord, that you'd have your will and way in our hearts and minds. and Lord, that we would give to you the greatest gift, that we have at our disposal, Father, we'd surrender ourselves for which you have professed and displayed your love in dying for our sins. Lord, help us to give you what you want this morning. Let us surrender ourselves unto you for your glory. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I'm fascinated when we read the Christmas narrative to uh, adjust my mind to just how different Christmas was on the first Christmas versus how we view and perceive Christmas today. You know, uh, today, Christmas, it starts about in July. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, if you're not a big fan of Christmas, just hold on. We've about made it through. Amen? But it starts in July, and there's much fanfare, and there's much excitement, much decoration, much gift-giving, a lot of pounds we put on during the Christmas season. There's a lot that takes place. And we might say this, there's a lot of of fanfare and there's a lot of extravagance that surrounds Christmas. But when our Lord and Savior was born in Bethlehem, heaven rejoiced, heaven made their presence known. But it was at a time in human history in which things have, and for lack of a better phrase, things was just sort of dead in Jerusalem. The worship was dead, the the temple sacrifices, I mean, they, they performed them but uh, God's voice had been silent for 400 years ever since God closed the Old Testament. It seemed as though God had forgotten about them. Then all of a sudden steps God from eternity into time, from uh, heaven onto earth, and all of a sudden the course of human history is changed forever. That evening, I don't know, and in the days following, that there were very many that were aware of the magnitude of what had taken place. The Bible tells us that there was a man by the name of Simeon who waited by the temple. And while everybody else just looked and saw a little baby being brought in, just like any, every, any and every other baby that would be brought in to be circumcised in accordance with the law, Simeon, when he beheld this child, saw all the hopes and help of humanity wrapped up in swaddling clothes. He saw all of God's providential plan in that uh, cherubic face. And he was able in the midst of all of it to see the true meaning of Christmas. I want you to think about a few things that might help you to understand what I mean this morning because I think Jerusalem during the time of Christ was very similar to what the Christmas season is today. Let me say, number one, that Jerusalem during that time was characterized by religion without a Redeemer. They worshipped at the temple. They gave sacrifices But the thought of a Messiah coming and giving His life in sacrifice for the sins of mankind was far from their minds. When you look at the structure of worship during that day, you have all these things that you can't find anywhere in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, here they are existing in the time of Christ. Uh, They had synagogues. You'll find no provision for synagogues uh, distinctly in the Old Testament. They had the Sanhedrin, the ruling body. Uh, over the nation of Israel. And you maybe can get a hint of that whenever Moses appoints some elders. But uh, the length to which it had grown and the rigidity and the authority which it wielded it were uh, not with keep, in keeping with what Moses had done. Uh, when you look at the, the uh, many rabbinical laws and rabbinical uh, truths, or let me say, teachings that they had applied over top of the truth of the law of God, many of those extraneous and not in keeping with Scripture. What I'm saying is this, that whenever you come down to the time of Christ's birth, religion in Jerusalem had been polluted, had been corrupted, and you had a religion that really did not need or look for a Redeemer to come. We live in a day where this is very similar to Christmas. Uh, listen, I, you know, one of the things we always as Bible believers need to keep the forefront of our mind, He didn't come to be born, He came to die. Amen. Yeah. He came to die for your sins and mine. And uh, in this Christmas season, while we gather around nativity scenes and see that little cherubic face on the little figurine, let us never forget the reason that He came was not just to be born. The reason He came was not just so we'd have something to celebrate. The reason He came was to be made a sacrifice for your sins and mine. He is the Redeemer and let us never forget it. And then Jerusalem at this time was characterized by worship without willingness. Now, I'm going to try to be careful here, because it is Christmas Eve morning. Amen? But I would remind you that Christmas and Easter are the busiest times of the year in the house of God. And I rejoice in everybody that comes in, be it Christmas season or Easter season, or I don't know, if you get real spiritual around 4th of July, come on and we'll be excited to see you. But we do understand, and I trust and believe, I mean this sincerely, that every person under the sound of my voice here today is here because you love the Lord and because you wanted to worship Him. But I am also aware that across the city today there are many that are uh, attending the house of God and sitting under preaching. It will be the only time in the year that they'll do it. And they're not doing it because they seek after God, but they're doing it merely because it's a tradition. It's something that's been passed down uh, from uh, parents or grandparents. And they're coming, but they don't want to. Worship without willingness. And then finally, let me say this. Not finally, don't get excited. It was characterized by giving without grace. We see what the Lord said about how the Pharisees tithed in mince and cumin, how that they would go through the very herbs that sat on their shelf and measure out a tenth of it to give unto the Lord. And the Bible talks about what an abomination it was that when they were giving, they weren't giving as unto the Lord, but they were giving to be seen of men. They gave, but there was no grace in their giving. We understand in this day that we live in the commercialization of Christmas and all that's taken place, that oftentimes we lose sight of who we ought to be given to. Amen? Uh, we lose sight of who we ought to be given to. My preacher, and by the way, we already took up the offering, so don't get nervous now. But my preacher used to always say growing up that you ought to always give the biggest Christmas gift you give to the Lord. And uh, by the way, that's not always money either. Sometimes it's the time that we invest. And sometimes, just as we said this morning while we prayed, it's the giving of ourselves. Don't you realize what God wants more than anything this Christmas season is you? Amen. That's who He came to die for. That's who He paid the ultimate price for. And so we ought to give ourselves unto Him. We ought to yield our hearts and souls and minds and wills and ambitions and desires unto Him. For He's bought, He's paid for us. The Bible says we're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in body and in spirit. But sadly today, uh, much of the Christmas season is characterized by giving just uh, because that's what we do and not giving out of grace. But in the midst of all this, here we find a man named Simeon who understands what it's really all about. And when I speak of understanding what it's really all about, I don't really mean the Christmas season as such. We understand they didn't have the Christmas season at this time, but he looks at the worship of the temple, he looks at the Old Testament law, he looks at the prophets and the things that they said, and then he looks at this little baby, and the Holy Ghost starts firing off the synapses of the mind and the heart, and he connects it and he understands. And when he looks at this child, he understands what it means for the world. This child has been born. I want you to notice a few things about him, and I think these are necessary if we're going to really worship the Lord on this Christmas Eve. Number one, I want you to notice he was separated. The Bible says he was a just and a devout man. You know, the truth is this. If the Lord don't mean anything to you 363 or 364 days out of the year, He ain't going to mean much to you on that one day of the year. We need to live our lives separated unto Him. It's funny, we uh, we understand this fundamentally as a principle of life, that if you want to meet with somebody, you got to get where they're at. Amen? You've got to set a meeting place. You've got to have some terms that you can come together upon. Now, let me say very clearly this morning that if I was to try to come to God in the strength of my own righteousness, I could never get to God. Hey, listen, there's nothing about me that's redeeming. Uh, there's nothing about me that's worthwhile. But I do understand this, that God, though I was not uh, a redeeming person, He deemed me redeemable. Amen? And He sent His Son to die for me. And He's made me worthy to worship Him. I wouldn't be worthy in of, of myself. but by the same token, we have to be willing to live a life of holiness if we're to enjoy the presence of God. The Bible says that we're to follow after holiness without which no man shall see God. And we have to be separated. I think Simeon because he was uh, walking with God and because he was living right, I think he was very perceptive to what this little child meant. Let me say number two, he was seeking. The Bible says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's another way of saying he was waiting for the Messiah. In fact, the name Simeon is very interesting. It actually means someone is hearing or it means to be heard. In other words, Simeon's very name bespoke what he spent his time doing. He was waiting and listening for God to deal with him. I hope when you came this morning, you came to meet with the Lord. I hope that when you came this morning, you came to hear from God because He's interested in speaking to you. And the greatest thing that could happen to you on this Christmas Eve morning uh, is that you could hear from God. If you're lost and undone, you could hear that uh, invitation into His presence and grace and you could experience salvation uh, free and full and paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're already saved, the greatest thing that could happen to you today is to be drawn closer into His presence. But to do this, you have to be listening. You have to be hearing. You have to be seeking. And let me say number three, He was Spirit-led. The Bible says the Holy Ghost was upon him in verse 25. Verse 27 says he came by the Spirit into the temple. In other words, God was leading him because he was seeking God. Something you'll find is if you'll you'll follow after God, he'll let you catch him. Amen? You'll seek after him, he'll be found. If you'll pursue after him, he'll draw you close unto himself. He said, draw nigh unto me and I'll draw nigh unto you, saith the Lord. And because Simeon was seeking after God, the Spirit of God was working in his heart and life and was leading him to this place. And so he takes this little baby up in his arms and he mentions seven things, and I just want to list them to you and then we'll close. Seven things that speak to us the full spectrum of what Christmas is all about. Look with me at verse number 27. The Bible says, "...He came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus..." to do for him after the custom of the law. Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said. Now let me pause there and say this. Before he ever said anything, he said something by his actions. And it speaks to us of the proximity of God. Now, don't you understand that the Christmas season, what it's really about can all be wrapped up in that name that was given him. Not just the name Jesus. But the Bible also said his name would be called Emmanuel. Amen. What that means is God with us. See, the first thing that Simeon does when he sees, he understands who this is. He understands this is the Messiah. He understands this is God. And he takes it as an indication to him that if God would go to such great lengths to get close to him, then he ought to get close to God. And so with boldness, with no shame, with no fear, he takes and grabs this little baby and holds it in its arms because he understands what it all means that God has come to dwell amongst men. The first and great and primary truth of Christmas is this, that He came, that He was robed in flesh, that He walked amongst men, the proximity that God desires to have with mankind. You'll have people in your life that will try to paint God as a distant figure, as someone that stands behind the shadows of the universe, peers out, sometimes waves some sort of wand of providence over humanity, but does not get up close and personal with His creation, but I'd have you to know that God was so interested in being close to you, God was so interested in feeling the infirmities of His own creation that He made Himself a part of it and was robed in flesh and took upon Him the likeness of man so that He could feel and hurt and weep and empathize with you. The great truth of Christmas is this, that God has come to earth, that He walks amongst men. By the way, that's still true today. I understand that He ascended to glory. I understand He's seated at the right hand of the Father. But He said this. He said, I go away, but I'll leave another comforter for you. He was talking about the Holy Ghost. God still has personal interaction with His children through the indwelling of the Spirit of God in our hearts and in our lives. God still desires to have a personal relationship with you and I. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, then you don't have the kind of relationship that will get you to heaven You don't have the kind of relationship that God desires for you. You don't have the kind of relationship that it's possible for you to have. Let me say to you this morning, my my relationship with God, I'm I'm not claiming I'm the example. And I'm not trying to set forth that I'm some sort of voice of experience, but I can say this, I know what it's like to be close to Him. I know what it's like to stray from Him, too. I know what it's like to live in rebellion. I know what it's like to do the wrong thing. I know what it's like to shield myself from His glory. But I also know what it's like to draw into His presence. And hey, listen, I've never picked Him up and held Him in my arms. But oh, there's been many a time He's picked me up and held me in His arms and comforted me and given me strength and grace to face the trials of life. God's a personal God. Hey, listen, uh, He's not a personalized God, amen, but He is a personal God. He desires to be close to us, the proximity of God. Look at verse 29. This is the first thing that Simeon actually speaks. He says, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in, and look at this next word, peace, according to thy word. You see, the Christmas season, it's about the proximity of God, but it's also about the peace of God. The angel's chorus was peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We live in a time when peace seems like an elusive Utopia that we'll never grasp again. And uh, this is not uncommon to the human experience. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in the Garden of Eden, peace has been elusive to mankind. Blood was shed not long after that, and it's still shed today. We live in a time, and listen, we're so focused on our little world, it would shock you to see all of the suffering and heartache and, and turmoil and violence going on in the world. Uh, We turn on the news and all all they care about is how many Cokes Donald Trump drank drank today. Amen. Don't you realize there's places in the world today where people are starving by the hundreds of thousands. There's places in the world today where genocide's being committed against entire people groups. We live in a world that it seems is ripped apart by the sin of mankind. Sometimes I think in our cushy, insulated, inoculated little world, we don't appreciate what peace means. But God gives a peace, the Bible says, that passeth all understanding. God gives a peace that's not conditional upon the circumstances of life, but resides within the soul of the child of God. God gives us not... Listen, we have three kinds of peace, the Bible says. Peace from God, peace with God, and peace of God. God resides within us to give us a peace that no other thing in the world can give. Nothing in the world can give. No amount of of substances, no amount of wealth, no amount of popularity, no amount of power. How often do you hear of people that have reached the very pinnacle of their career only to take their life? Because they got to the top of the mountain and realized it was awful cold and dark and lonely there. And yet God can take people going through things that are unfathomable. And God can sit down on the throne of their heart and life and reign from within. And the peace of God can reign in their lives. God gives a peace. It's not an external peace. It's an internal peace. There will come a day, of course, when the peace of God will reign in this world. I believe that. There will come a day when He ascends that throne in Jerusalem and He takes the authority and the oversight of this world and peace will reign. Listen, we don't have to wait till then to experience the peace of God. If you're here today lost and undone, if you'll open your heart to Christ, if you'll receive Him as your Savior, if you'll repent of who you are and what you've done and ask God to save you because you can't save yourself, then the peace of God will flood your heart and mind and life. God will take control. Amen. That's what He always does. He spoke of the peace of God. Verse 30, He says this, Mine eyes have seen thy salvation. He spoke of the plan of God. I said a moment ago that Christmas is not about His birth. Christmas is about His death. I know we associate His death with the Easter season. I understand why. But He's the only individual in all of human existence that was ever born for the express purpose of dying. Now, if the Lord tarries His coming, there will come a day when our hearts will stop beating, our lungs will stop breathing, our brain will stop thinking. Some of us are already there. Amen? Amen. But the Lord Jesus, listen, we're going to meet death, but He came to meet death. And over and over and over again, He would speak of this hour that He was approaching. And when He got close to it, He said, For this hour came I into the world. And He was talking about the hour of His death. Whenever Simeon looked at that little baby, he saw the singular, only, and absolute hope for man's eternal destiny. He saw God's salvation. He saw God's plan of salvation. I don't know how much Simeon understood, but I know he understood that God's salvation does not reside within a a place, does not reside within a denomination, does not reside within a creed or a dogma, does not reside within a priesthood of human bearings, but it resided in a person. And he says, when I saw that child, I saw God's salvation. It's the same today. You may have all the church house religion that you can handle. You may be the most church-like and churchy person in your whole family. And if you've never received the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, still be on your way to hell. You can have been baptized so many times that you're waterlogged. You can have been sprinkled and sprayed and dipped and dunked and whatever you might imagine. None of that can save a person because God's salvation is not within sacraments or rites or ceremonies. You may associate much of your childhood with the house of God. And really, I hope you do. You've had a good childhood if you can do that. But you may have some sacred place that you say, Well, uh, whenever I go back there, I feel close to God. But hey, listen, if the Jews couldn't find that in Jerusalem in the Mount of God, then you better believe that no matter what church you're a member of, what church you worship at, what church you go to, what church you baptize baptized at, none of that means anything. If Jerusalem didn't mean anything, you better believe that our places don't mean anything. If you've not met the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the thing that you have to understand, it's all wrapped up in that person. If you have Him, you have salvation. If you don't have Him, you don't have salvation. I'm, listen, I'm glad you're here today. But the truth of the matter is, you could walk through these doors a million times, that wouldn't get you to heaven. You could donate and give and tithe and give every penny that you've got, wouldn't get you to heaven. You can be baptized. You can uh, be anointed. You can have folks pray over you. None of that can get you to heaven. The only thing that can get you to heaven, the reason that Christ came was so that the person of God, the Son of God, would be made a sacrifice for us that we might receive Him and know Him. And if you have the Son, you have the Father. And if you have the Father, you'll love the Son. And if you have the Son, you have life everlasting. He saw the plan of God in this child. I don't know how much he understood But then verse 31, he says, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. He sees the providence of God. Christmas is probably, if if we wanted to lay a few words beside Christmas as defining what it means in the Bible, I'd say the word incarnation would be a good one. that He was robed in flesh. I'd say the word salvation would be a good one that He came to die for us. I'd say the word grace would be a good one because man didn't deserve it but God gave it anyway. Then I think one of the greatest words we could lay beside the Christmas season and see in vivid relief against so many uh, people that preach chaos and happenstance is the providence of God. When you observe the Christmas uh, day and when you observe what happened when our Lord was born, don't you understand that every minute detail of the Savior's birth was given both by prophecy and providence from the hand of God. The fact that he would be born of a virgin, the fact that he would be of the tribe of Judah, the fact that he would be born in Bethlehem, the fact that there'd be a star that would up bespeak and reveal his location, uh, the fact that there'd be people come from the east to worship him, uh, the fact that uh, uh, he would uh, be uh, after his birth that there would be a great genocide against children two years old and younger, the fact that he would flee from there and go to Nazareth or go to Egypt uh, to uh, avoid uh, being killed in that genocide, the fact that he. Come back and go to Nazareth and live there. Hey, listen, everywhere you look at the Savior's birth and early life, you'll find the prophecies of God. Amen. Not just the prophecies of God, the providence of God. You understand that never until this moment in human history could what have happened, happen. Never before until the Romans came along and built road systems until the Romans came along and codified law in a more thorough way than any civilization before them had ever done. I mean, don't you realize, hey, listen, if everybody's going to be taxed, there has to be a governmental body that can tax them. Amen? You, you still believe that, don't you? Amen? You know, it's been a while since taxation without representation, but we, we're, we're getting back there. But uh, none of these things could have happened. If the Pax Romana, the peace that the Roman Empire had brought and stabilization of the world had not existed, there wouldn't have been road systems for him to travel. It wouldn't have been safe enough for him to travel. There wouldn't have been a Caesar that called for a census to take place and for taxation to be made. Say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying that whenever you look at the life of the Lord Jesus and His birth, you'll find the providence of God everywhere you turn. God is a providential God. God does know and plan every detail, and we find the providence of God in this passage. But then I want you to look with me at verse number 32. The Bible says this, Simeon says, "...a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel." The promise of God is mentioned in this passage. There's two people groups that Christ came to affect and to touch, and that's the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, if you ain't a Jew, you're a Gentile. Somebody say amen to that. If you ain't a Gentile, you're a Jew. I understand, dispensationally speaking, when we talk about this day that we live in, the church is viewed as a separate entity as well. What I'm saying is this, that when Simeon saw this child, he saw God's promise. Everything wrapped up to God's association with humanity for every people group, whether Jew or Gentile. He came, look at it again in verse number 32, a light to lighten the Gentiles. When you go through the Lord's earthly ministry, you'll find this echoed time and time again that He's the light of the world, that He came to shine a light uh, to those beyond Naphtali and Zebulun. Those were the farthest reaching tribes, the nation of Israel. Uh, Even when you come down right before the Lord's birth, the Bible tells us in uh, the book of John, chapter number 12, about an envoy of Gentiles that had come to Jerusalem to hear and to see Christ. And uh, they had come and they said, I like this man, they said, we would see Jesus. In other words, they said, hey, where we've been sitting, we've been hearing lots of things, and there's been a a glow coming over the hillside. We've been hearing that God is doing something in Jerusalem. We've been hearing that God has manifested Himself to the people of Israel, and we've come to see the light so that we might have our lives changed. Then He is the glory of Israel. The glory of God in the Old Testament was always associated with His immediate presence with the people of God. You go back in the Old Testament, whenever on the Day of Atonement, God would sit down upon the mercy seat what we call the Shekinah glory of God. In other words, the visible glory of God. A great light would shine down upon that place and God would sit down on the mercy seat. When Simeon looks at this child, he sees nothing less than the visible, immediate presence of God amongst Israel. He says, here God has sat down in human flesh to meet with mankind. We see the promise of God. We see verses 34 and 35, the propitiation of God. He says this to the parents, Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Look at the end of verse 35 after the parentheses. It says that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Simeon saw the propitiation of God in that little child. Now when we talk about propitiation, we're talking distinctly about the Savior's sacrificial, substitutional death. In the Old Testament, they used the word atonement. It had the idea of covering our sins. But in the New Testament, He doesn't cover our sins. He cleanses our sins. And that's what the word propitiation means. It means to wash clean, to take away. And when he looked at this little child, he understood this. He understood that God had given this messianic child, God had given his own son, and in doing so, he was going to be a rock of offense and a stumbling block to the nation of Israel. He would not be received and crowned as their king, but he'd be rejected and crucified as their sacrifice. And he says this child set for the fall and rising again. Notice he didn't say for the rising again and falling. The reason, listen, through the death of Christ, the Jews are not cast off as a people. The only hope that they have of ever knowing their God in a personal way is established through the cross of Calvary. They may have fallen away in the providential plan of God for a a season. That's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans. said that there's blindness in part to the nation of Israel. And that's true today. Uh, For the vast majority of Jews, they're they're secular. They reject the notion of religion at all, let alone Bible, Christianity. And uh, and those that are actually in Jerusalem are ensnared and and, uh, enchained in in, uh, Judaistic orthodoxy by and large as a people. Now, by the way, God can still save them. Amen. And just like God can save you and me, whatever our bondage is. But they as a people, as a whole, are under judicial blindness. They've fallen, but it's not an eternal falling. God's going to raise them again. This child is set for the falling and rising again of many uh, of Israel. And notice this in verse number 35. And I about ran out of gas. Somebody say amen. That the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You know what the cross of Calvary does? It shines a light on man's heart. So many people approach unto God claiming that they want to be saved and that they are seeking Him. But the Bible says that the cross and the preaching of the cross is an offense to those that perish. And so when faced with the death of Christ, we are faced with this inescapable truth that God came to die in our place because we couldn't die for our own sins God came to give His own life because we couldn't save ourselves. And this is the great separator in human consciousness and thought. Because there we have a decision. It's not an apprehension of the mind, but it's a decision of the will. Will we acknowledge what God says is true? That I'm not righteous? that I can't save myself, that there's no amount of ceremony, there's no amount of sacrifice on my part, there's nothing I can do to incur God's favor or to live and walk worthy of Him in and of myself. The cross tells me that I'm not enough, but God gave all I need in the person of Christ. And the thoughts of many hearts are revealed. Reminds me of the publican... And the Pharisee, Christ told in Luke chapter number 18 a parable about two men. One of them was a Pharisee and he came and he was worshiping in the temple and he made many long prayers and some of them went this way. He looked over and he saw this publican. You know what a publican was? was a tax collector. Didn't nobody like him then either. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, he looks at this public and and typically in society in that day they were corrupt and they were uh they they were, you know, uh greedy and they took advantage of people and they were viewed as a very undesirable element of society. And the Pharisee looks at this publican and he says, Lord, I want to thank you that I'm not like this man. He says, God, I want to thank you. I fast twice a day, I give tithes of everything that I have. No doubt as he stood there with the phylacteries, the little boxes of Scripture upon his, his right hand and upon his head, with his long garment, with the blue hem in the bottom, no doubt he looked around in all of his pious self-righteousness and thought, boy, I'm somebody, and I thank God that I am. Then the Lord Jesus says that this publican, he approached God in a different way. The Bible says he smote on his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now I wonder who told him he was a sinner (laughs) Wonder why he thought God could have mercy Wonder why he thought that God could forgive him See the cross of Calvary tells me that I'm not sufficient That my righteousness is not good enough That my good works are not good enough If my good works were enough God wouldn't have sent his son He would have just told me to live good Do my best and I'll be all right. But that's not what he said The Bible said by grace are ye saved through faith Not of works Lest any man should boast It's the gift of God that no flesh should glory in his presence like that Pharisee did. And Jesus says about this Pharisee in public, and publican, he looks at his disciples and he said, this man, the publican that smote upon his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, this man went to his house justified. The other man didn't. But that man, he got what he needed from God. Whenever Simeon looked at this little child, he understood instinctively that this child would be the hinge upon which the world would turn that His Word would be a two-edged sword upon which knife's edge, all of humanity and all of their destiny would go one way or the other. Here's a question I have for you today. What path have you chosen? What direction have you gone? When faced with the cross of Calvary, have you received or have you rejected Him? got one final thing I want to say. Look at verse 35. A handful of words in parentheses. Don't you know, Mary thought about these for years afterwards. I don't know how much she understood. But Simeon looks at Mary and says, Yea, a sword shall pierce through thy own soul also. I wonder why Simeon said this to Mary. And I wonder why, even if Simeon said it, why did God go to such great lengths to record it in His Word and to display it to us? I'll give you what I think and you can take it for whatever you value that at. I believe the reason that God in such vivid descriptive language describes what the cross would do to Mary is because Mary was the closest human being in the world to understanding what God the Father experienced when He gave His Son. Nobody else in the world could understand it quite like Mary could. Because we understand that that body that was grown in her womb, she looked at that baby and said, This is my child. Joseph was a stepfather. Joseph understood he had no earthly or temporal connection to that child. But when Mary looked at that baby, she saw her son. By the way, when Christ looked at him, he saw the mother of that body. He, on the cross of Calvary, said, Woman, behold thy son. In other words, I'd say this in closing. One of the things we have to acknowledge if we're going to look at Christmas biblically is the pain of God in giving His Son to die for us. Oh my! We'll never fathom how God's heart broke. We'll never fathom how deeply He must have loved us to be willing to give His only begotten Son. The Bible says in Romans 5.8, 5, eight. God commendeth His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God conveyed and committed and displayed and declared and proclaimed His love for us in that He allowed a sword to go through His own soul. He gave bankrupted heaven's coffers for paupers and beggars like you and me. Amen. Let us never forget... Let us never forget just what it cost God for you and I to know Christ as our Savior. God is God. We understand this. We understand that God is not physical. God is a spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Christ said to the woman at the well, But in some mysterious way, God felt pain. Talking to my wife the other day, my little boy was running around, and you know, having a kid, it's like getting a new car. You know, those first few bumps and bruises and scratches, you're thinking, "Oh man, that's going to kill my resale value." And uh, he was he was running around upstairs, and he went smack right into a uh, corner of a little desk and uh, cut his eye. He's all right and everything. He's hard headed like his daddy, and but later on, my wife. She made a statement that I thought about, and I've thought about it several times since then. She looked at him, and he just looked so pitiful. You know, got that bandage on his head. Uh, His head was hurting, and you just tell he felt bad. And she said, every time I think about it, it hurts me here. And some of you that have had children, you know what that means, and especially you mothers. When you hear them cry, it hurts you here. It's like it's physically crippling. You know what that is? That's a sword piercing through your own soul. Now imagine that magnified by infinite qualities. As God observed His Son being spit upon, stripped naked, beaten, flogged, beard plucked out, nailed to a cross. Imagine what the heart of God felt. And then consider this, He did that all because He loves you God's loving grace pursued you and has pursued me. I hope you accept and receive the love of God today. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, I hope you'll not leave this place before you quit relying on yourself and whatever else you might be depending on and turn unto Christ and Him alone. For in that person and Him alone is there salvation for you today. And I think today would be a good time if you know Christ as your Savior. If there's some area of your life that you've held back from Him, won't you give Him the Christmas gift He truly wants and surrender your heart and life to Him? Maybe some pet sin that you've been harboring. Maybe some act of faith that you've been hesitant, that God's dealt with you about stepping out on. Maybe some area of bitterness that you've been shielding and, and cultivating that root of bitter. Whatever it is, Won't you give it to God today? That's what He's really interested in is you. And even if your heart is in a right condition, even if you'd say, Preacher, there's no area in my life I can think of, today would be a good day to come down to an altar and thank God for the great gift He gave us, what Paul calls His unspeakable gift. Say, Lord, I just want to thank You for sending Your Son, not just to be born, but to die in my place and forgiving all of my sins.